You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com. Joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is February 16th, and spring training camps have opened or are opening across Florida and Arizona. And I gotta say, I'm so excited about this because actual things are happening. There's news. There's a bunch of weird pitcher injury news we're gonna talk about. We are going to get into projection seasons and the differences between projection systems. We're gonna talk a little bit about the new rules because that's obviously a big topic of conversation. And we're gonna get into three teams that improved on defense before we circle back just a little bit to last week and get into a pretty fun challenging trade between two former top high draft picks. Matt, since spring training has opened over the last 48 hours or so, there's kind of like a rite of spring passage where beat writers go to camps and start taking very far away pictures of guys throwing on the mound, although it's better because phone technology and cameras have improved a lot. And I was a little surprised by uh, maybe the magnitude of new pitcher injuries that we found out about. And there's a couple of these I want to go through. I kind of want to start with the Yankees because we had learned, I guess, a week or so ago that Nestor Cortez would not appear in the World Baseball Classic because he tweaked his hamstring and that he's hopeful for opening day. I'm like, okay, this thing's happened. And now we find out that Frankie Montas is going to have shoulder surgery and may be back later in the year, may not. And all of a sudden, the Yankees pitching depth is um, a little more questionable than I thought it would was going to be. How do you, how does that make you feel about that trade, I guess? Like going back to the last season when they traded him for Oakland, got eight games of 6.3 ERA. Yeah, obviously that has not worked out that well for the Yankees because you know the whole idea, as has a lot of these trade trade deadline trades now, is you like you see these guys traded a year and a half out from free agency. It was like, oh, well, we're getting Frankie Montes. He's not just a rental. We have him for a year and a half. Well, he may not basically pitch at all for the Yankees in that time. And I mean, spring training is great because, hey, baseball's back. But this is what I really always makes me antsy about spring training because it feels like there's always just like the slow trickle of bad injury news that you get where it's like, oh, this guy's kind of hurt. Like this could be worse than we thought. And it's like, oh, the kind of bummer, especially when it comes to pitchers where you start to realize, oh, this guy may not be available this year. This, you know, so that's it's kind of, I mean, if you're a Yankees fan, it's a real bummer. They're still a very good team, and we'll get to the, that a little bit more when we talk projections. But yeah, that trade is not looking so great for the Yankees right now. Man, spring is supposed to be a time of rebirth. Like the season's going to start. And now you've just sort of talked me into that the only news can be bad news. Because like we'll hear about a guy saying, wow, he's in the best shape of his life, and we'll laugh because it doesn't matter. You know, oh, Mike Trout looks great today. None of the good things matter, only the bad things matter. That is such a nihilistic, Bomber way to start the season. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, Sorry. Can we get into actual bad news? Because like the Yankee stuff doesn't bother me too much. I wasn't expecting a lot from Montas. Um, if you look at the Orioles last year, I think their big step forward was due to two things. One was Adley Rutschman, who obviously came up as catcher and was phenomenal. And the other thing was their bullpen was really great because uh, I, I think people overlooked the fact that even though the Orioles were winning games last year, the rotation wasn't that impressive. It was the bullpen. They we're saving pretty much every game. And then they traded Jorge Lopez to Minnesota last summer. And now we are learning Felix Bautista will be late getting into grapefruit early games because um, he's trying to strengthen his knee and his shoulder. I believe he had knee surgery over the winter. It possibly could be opening, ready for opening day. And Dylan Tate, 
who was a really cool story because he'd been a top draft pick a bunch of years ago and like finally put it together last year. Apparently in November, he had injured a flexor in his forearm and he's going to miss all of April. And now if you look at the Orioles bullpen, at least to start the season, maybe Bautista, not Tate, Brian Baker, Seattle Perez, like that's not quite the guys at the top of that um, bullpen that I kind of expected just based on how really good it was last year. And since they didn't do a whole lot for their rotation, suddenly I was like pretty high in the Orioles a week ago. And this is tempering that enthusiasm a little bit for me. The Dylan Tate one, especially, that sounds like one of those things that's kind of ominous. We're, we're already saying like, oh, he's going to be out for April and it's a form. It's like, that's concerning. As you said, he was this, this great story of a guy who had kind of figured things out and become maybe not the star that people thought he would be when I think he was the number four pick of the Rangers, but had turned himself into a very good major leaguer for an up-and-coming team. So that's definitely kind of a bummer. And with the Orioles all along, you were, you were, count, you were counting on the young guys coming up and like taking them to the next level, and that still could happen. But as you said, like the bullpen was a, was a quiet strength in the last year, and this is, this is concerning. Since you mentioned the Rangers, let's at least mention Jacob deGrom. I want to preface this by saying I do not care about this. I know everyone's freaking out about it. I do not care. General Manager Chris Young said that deGrom felt, and I quote, a little tightness in his left side during his bullpen session, and because it's been oddly cold in Arizona, it's been like 30s and 40s with with rain and hail. Meanwhile, here in New York in February, it was like 64 degrees out yesterday. Everything's normal and fine. They're holding back deGrom by a day or two, and I get it, like, Here's a guy who just signed a massive contract. Here's a guy who has had endless injury issues. It's like red alert for everybody. I don't care about this. I don't care if he's throwing off a mound on the first day of camp on February 15th. If, it's, if he's not pitching in three weeks, okay, this doesn't bother me at all. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's purely the the quote unquote the narrative around Degrom, right? That like, it's it just it just plays into that concern. But it's obviously far too early to be concerned, at least in terms of like it affecting his availability on opening day or anything like that. There's news about Casey Mize, uh, who we knew had Tommy John surgery last June and was going to miss most or all of the season. He uh, revealed that he also at a similar time underwent back surgery, and had had. Uh, he says it's not affected to, expected to affect his timetable, but the back had been bothering him before the elbow, dating back for years. I guess getting them both out of the way at the same time makes sense. You know, I've got my car in the shop for tires. I might as well get the oil changed. Is kind of the way I'm thinking about this. But uh, that's it's it's a problem for the Tigers, just in the sense that they have not had him healthy and available for a while, and now he's not just coming back from an arm thing; he's coming back for a back thing, which sounds kind of scary, unless. It's going to resolve all that. I don't really know what to make of this, but it's news that came out, so I felt like we should talk about it. <laughs> Speaking of ominous injuries around former top draft picks, um, this also doesn't sound great. And also, Casey Mize has not even had any notable good performance in the majors to make you feel like, oh, he's going to come back to something that he was before. I guess there's always the chance that, like, he's, as he said, maybe he's always been bothered by a back issue, and like maybe this will clear up all of his issues, and suddenly the talent that made him the number one pick in the draft a few years ago will will reemerge. But it's been a pretty disappointing start to his career to this point, and it's hard to be that optimistic right now about, at least certainly for 2023 for Casey Mize, but you know we'll see beyond that. And our final piece of pitcher injury news from spring training, and I hate to just like steer into the skid of being a bummer here, but this one doesn't sound great. Steven Strasburg has obviously been attempting to recover uh, from injuries for years. He had thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, and apparently he spent all offseason working up to throwing bullpen sessions, and he threw one recently, and he felt pretty good. Then he threw a second one, 
and he's got a nerve issue that has sidelined him again with no timetable for return since winning the 2019 World Series and signing the huge $245 million contract. He has thrown eight games, 31 and a third innings, and it's it's questionable as to whether we ever see him again. I know the thoughts of most people will go to, oh my God, $245 million for potentially eight games. I'm not worried about that so much. I mean, they won the World Series, right? They won the World Series riding him and Scherzer, and clearly he earned it and had been very successful before that, so the contract doesn't worry me so much. It's just a bummer in the sense that when when he was at his best, which he had been a number of times over the years, but especially in that run-up to the World Series, there weren't that many guys who were more fun to watch, in my opinion, I think. Because remember, the number one overall pick, all the hype, the shutdown, all that, and like there he was at peak Strasburg. And we may never see that again or, or him at all. And just as a baseball fan, uh, that stinks. I, ho- I hope that's not what happens. I agree. It's weird because of all the hype around him. For a while, he kind of felt like, oh, maybe he was a disappointment. But at the same time, he had a really good career. And he finished in the top five of the Cy Young Award twice. He obviously was a key cog in that World Series championship winning team. Um, so... Maybe relative to the hype, he was a little bit of a letdown, but he still has had a fantastic career. We're capped off by that World Series, if nothing else. I'm with you. I hope. I mean, the Nationals are obviously don't really like Steven Strasburg is not going to move the needle for the 2023 Nationals. So, like, they're probably going to finish in the bottom of the NL East, no matter what, with 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 a, with the best version of Steven Strasburg or without Steven Strasburg. But you also want to see him on the field. Gives. That would give Nats fans a connection to those that championship team, and like who knows, maybe there was this, maybe there is a second act to his career where the, the a rebuilding team he gets traded, and like we see a different version of Strasburg and a different team, and I hope that comes to pass because it would be bummer if this is kind of how it ended for him. Two quick pitching signings I wanted to talk about. I have important guy remembering news. Last week we spent a lot of time talking about how the Angels had tried to supplement their superstars uh, with just decent, competent middle class major league baseball players. They have reportedly signed Matt Moore uh, to a contract today. I didn't realize till I looked this up. The Angels bullpen was projected by Fangraphs before Matt Moore, maybe even still with him, to be the thirtieth of thirty teams. I did not realize how weak that group still looked, and that was including the fact that I really liked them signing uh, Carlos Estevez. Matt Moore, you may remember, uh, was very good on some of those decade-ago Tampa Bay teams, right, with like Longoria and Sobrist and David Price, like that kind of teams. Since 2016, when he got traded, he has gone through San Francisco, Texas, Detroit, Japan, Philadelphia, back to Texas. And from 2015 to 2021, he had a 5.26 ERA in the majors. Then last year had a 195 ERA. Wasn't really that good. But he started throwing the curve almost as much as the fastball. And I remember when I looked into under under the market or underrated relievers on the market a couple months ago, um, I found something that Kennedy Landry had written. Uh, she's our Rangers P writer. And basically, Matt Moore had uh, credited the pitching coaches there for helping him tweak the grip on his curveball and the grip on his four-seamer. And all of a sudden, he started getting more movement on both. And I like this kind of story because it's sort of like the Shelby Miller story with the Dodgers. You look at like a decade of his ERA, and it just it does not matter anymore. It's like, what can he do now? He's going to be a very different pitcher now. I like this for the Angels. More guys. Bring in Gary Sanchez next. They definitely need more guys. This is one of the he, this is one of those questions we see a lot with these kind of career reclamation projects, where you always wonder, okay, they got the coaching and advice in one location that turned their turn their career around. Is that going to necessarily carry over to their new location where they will have a different coaching staff, a different set of voices in their ear? 
you'd like to assume that like he could remember what he did and why it made him successful. But I'm always curious with guys like that because obviously some it works out perfectly, others it kind of just it, it it happened in the one place and they move and they're never able to recapture it. But given where the Angels are and what's left on the market, this is obviously worth it for them. We talked about them of just trying to raise the floor and even you know. 85% of last year's math, Matt Moore is probably going to be useful for the Angels and help raise their floor, their bullpen. They, they have two guys like that because can Tyler Anderson take what he learned with the Dodgers and keep it with the Angels is a really interesting story to me. You know, is it something that had to happen at Dodger Stadium or is it a skill he can take with him? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, the last uh, pitching signing is Michael Waka finally has a job. Our long national nightmare is over. He went to the Padres. This makes sense enough. Like He's not that exciting to me. But I think when we talked about you Darvish's contract, we sort of mentioned that the Padres, they've got a lot of high-level pitching. You know, Musgrove, Darvish, Blake Snell. Neither one of us really bought into the pitching depth that much. Like Seth Lugo is not going to really make a ton of starts for you. So Michael Walker is maybe also just another guy. But I think this makes a lot of sense for the Padres. Uh, even though they appear to have... Uh, put a pilot program into place where they have the first 90 man roster in baseball. Cause I just feel like they have more guys than spots, which will be fun to watch them juggle. Uh, I would be very interested and surprised to know if you have a hot Michael Walker take, because I don't think you do, but it's a good signing. I definitely do not have a hot Michael Walker take. Good to know. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We'll come back and uh, we will talk about some of the projection systems and where they disagree. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We're going to move into our three batter minimum where we talk about three interesting topics for the week. The first one it is projection season. The major baseball analysis websites, baseball perspectives, fangrass, everybody's got their own projection system with silly acronyms that may or may not mean anything. And uh, two of the most notable ones have put out there uh, season 2023 win and loss projections. And they're always interesting because People always get mad at them because they always look at, oh, how come the boy, the projections didn't pick the 2021 Giants to go nuts and win 108 games? And then nobody asks the follow up question of, yeah, but did any humans predict that? Like, did any of your local sports writers see that coming? No, they did not. You know, so projections are not perfect predictions, but they, they do a really good job, I think, of level setting. Um, the one weakness they have is they just they don't know trades. You know, if somebody trades for Juan Soto in the middle of the season, for example, who could possibly have foreseen that? So we went and looked at all the 30 teams, both by Pakoda, which is baseball prospectuses system, which has been around for gosh, 20 years now. And um Fangraphs uses Zips, which is Dan Zimborski's projection system. And for the most part, they like they roughly align. You know, if you look at let's say one through five in each division, there's mostly alignments, but the most interesting points of conversation are where they disagree. Matt, there is one team that they disagree on by nine wins, and that's the New York Yankees. Zips, 
thinks 89 wins. Uh, Pakoda thinks 98 wins. My, you know, lukewarm old milk take is in the middle. They're a 94 win team. Which which side of this are you leaning towards more? Um, well, I'm also I, I'm, I'm guessing that. I mean, granted, I'm not sure that these injuries move the needle all that much, but I don't think Nestor Cortez or Frankie Montez's injuries are baked into these at all. And I'm curious if that would even swing either of them by a win or two, uh, if 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 they were kind of aware that these guys would miss time. I mean. Montez was supposed to be part of the rotation, and he now might not pitch this season. So that is something. Granted, he's probably his projected numbers are probably replaceable. Eighty-nine wins definitely seems low. Yes, I'll say that. I think that like Carlos Rodon, it, they have a very. I'm going to say that it's. Hard, it doesn't seem like Cortez is going to miss significant time. It's a leg injury, not an arm injury. That's a very good starting rotation. There's still some reasons to be skeptical about the depth of their lineup, but the pitching rotation for the Yankees is very good. They've always managed to put together a good bullpen. And while, okay, it's unclear who their shortstop's going to be, there's a good chance we're going to see Anthony Volpe in a month or two, and he's going to be very good. And so 89 wins feels low to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, but the other the other three notable teams, uh, Toronto, Tampa, and Boston, they are within plus or minus two wins. Big difference with Baltimore. Uh, Zips says 80 wins. Prospectus says 74 I think I'd take the over on 74, but then I just kind of dumped all over their bullpen. So now I'm not really sure where I sit there. If you look at the Central, the American League Central, I think is really fascinating. Baseball Prospectus' Pakota system has Minnesota and Cleveland tied at 88 wins, which I find is interesting because I don't think that they're even teams in my mind. On the other hand, uh, Zips does not like either team. They have the Twins at 80 wins and Cleveland at 83 wins, which I think I'm with them on Cleveland is three wins better than the Twins. But... I'm always the low man on the Guardians, and I think they're going to win more than 83 games, right? Well, the one thing you, one thing you'll notice if you go through the projections is that like Pakoda has a lot more variance in their projections, right? Like they they have you know the Yankees all the way up at 98 wins. I don't think the you know Zips has anyone more than 94 wins. So it's all like Zips is way more bunched together. So it's probably more likely like like there it's I don't want to call it conservative, but like the, the 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 win projections are, are a lot more modest. One thing I do really like about Pakoda, if you go to the Baseball Prospectus website and go to their standings projected standings page, is if you scroll down, it it does a shows like a bell curve, like a dis- distribution of possible outcomes for their projections, which I think is really really helpful. Because if you look, if you just look at the the overall win projection, it's like oh the Yankees are going to win ninety eight games and the Blue Jays are going to win ninety games. Gonna, the Yankees are going to run away with this division, but then when you see the distribution of their win totals in like stacked on top of each other, there's a huge overlap where Toronto ends up with more wins than the Yankees, right? So it's like you, it's very easy to sort of visualize. Okay, yes, this is sort of what they're saying is like their their mean projection, but there's a lot of scenarios in which the Yankees do not. Do not finish in first place, and that both you know there's a very reasonable scenario where both Toronto and Tampa finish ahead of the Yankees. There's a tiny sliver where they have Boston finishing above the Yankees, and there's hardly any sliver where they have Baltimore finishing ahead of the Yankees. I think that's perhaps most surprising on Pakoda is that they have Baltimore um, behind the Red Sox, whereas I think the conventional wisdom right now is that the Red Sox are the fifth team in that division. I'm with you on the uh, utility of the distribution charge. If Angros does that too, they just make it a little bit more difficult to find. And those are very funny because if you look on the like lowest rated team and you look at their best possible projection, it overlaps with the worst case for the top team. So it's like, I don't know what the scenario is where let's say the A's are better than the Astros, 
but I assume it has something to do with weather balloons and alien invasion. <laughs> so the West here is really fascinating to me. Both systems think Houston is the best. Unsurprisingly, there's a little bit of difference in the wind totals, whatever. Both systems think Oakland is uh, the weakest, of course. What's interesting to me here is that if you look at the Angels and the Mariners, neither one of them thinks the Mariners are better than the Angels. So Zips has them tied at 85 wins. And Pakota has the Angels at 86 wins and Seattle at 82. And I guess I'm less interested in the specifics of like the win totals there in that neither one of them thinks the Mariners are better than the Angels. Oh, wow. I just recently did a piece that hasn't run yet where I looked at how much each team has improved over the winter. And just about every team uh, you know, added something. And I, I have the Mariners as the only team taking a step back this winter. And I'm sort of wondering if we're like peeling back the onions and uncovering that the Mariners, a team everybody loved and enjoyed, is maybe not as good as they think they should be. Like that, that was so interesting to me that the Mariners did not rate wet better here. I was a big Mar- Mariner skeptic last year, and then you know I ended up with kind of egg on my face because they ended up having this, this, uh, this you know really excellent season, winning ninety games. Although they'd also won ninety games the year before, it just happened not to make the playoffs. Um, so I guess I'm a, I'm a little hesitant to kind of dismiss them again because I was wrong about them last year. But the roster looks, you know, fairly unchanged. And maybe if, if you're the manager, you're like, well, yeah, it's unchanged. But we have like Julio Rodriguez, one of the game's ascendant superstars. And then we also have a couple of young pitchers who are on the ascent. And like Logan Gilbert and George Kirby, Luis Castillo we have for a full season. Like that's – this is like a – this is a really improved team. I mean, this is, we, we're going to improve because of just like what we have internally, which I'm sure is probably what they're – what they've talked themselves into – and then every year it feels like we always talk – I feel like I always talk myself into the Angels <laughs> and they disappoint. Uh, I don't know what to make of the AOS is what I'm saying. I know that I'm going to pick Houston number one and Oakland fifth. I can tell you that with the utmost certainty. <laughs> Astros one, A's five. Then The National League has some interesting ones too. Um, I was looking personally at the NL East as something of a three-team tie at the top, but probably not. I'd probably put Philadelphia third, like slightly behind the other two teams, just because Bryce Harper is going to miss so much time. And that's kind of different in both systems. So like Pakoda has the Mets and the Braves tied, fine. And Philadelphia nine wins behind that, which is surprising. That's Zips that has them tied. That was Zips. That was Zips, yeah. Pakoda has the Braves one win ahead of the Phillies, which is fine. But the Mets five wins ahead of the Braves, which was surprising to me. And it's a similar but unrelated uh, look that Fangraphs has. They came out with their playoff odds today. They actually have the Braves as the team with the highest World Series odds. I don't know how you can separate the Braves and Mets kind of at all. So I'm going to go with Zips on this one because they're tied. But then also, I don't see such a big gap between them and the Phillies. I guess they're going to have to play the games. I guess that's what's going to happen here. We have to actually watch the baseball season and not play spreadsheet baseball. More hot takes on this podcast right there. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the Central 2, uh, the Brewers and the Cardinals are separated by two games in Pakoda and by eight games in Zips. Are the Cardinals a 91-win team to you? I don't feel like they are. I think that – is that the only one where – Zips and Pakoda have different first place teams where like Pakoda has Milwaukee winning the division and Zips has St. Louis winning the division by eight games. <laughs> like that's that's it, a- it, if you separate ties, like there's there's some tied divisions, but otherwise, yes, there's no like clear one two flip flop. I'm still skeptical. Yeah, I I'm taking the Cardinals. They're just a, a more solid team at the high end and that, I think it's closer than eight games, oh, though. Yes. I do think it's closer Absolutely. than eight games. Milwaukee is always like seems to overperform. Even last year, as much of a disappointment it was, we talked about this last week. They basically don't waste. They basically never employ replacement level players. They they basically they're always a good job at having like average or slightly above average players everywhere on the field. 
which while not like sexy, is a really effective way to win, you know, 88 to 94 games. And that's what I think that team is going to be again this year. But I would take I would take uh, St. Louis over them. And in the West, uh, I think everybody knows the Dodgers aren't as strong as they have been before. And Zips has the Dodgers and the Padres tied at 91 wins. I think that's totally reasonable, except they have the Giants and only three wins behind that, which is a little, uh, not so sure about that one. Pagoda has the Giants uh, at 81 wins as opposed to 88, but they also have the Dodgers at 96 wins. I don't think anybody knows what to make of the Dodgers this year. I certainly don't. I, they've had a very disappointing offseason for the most part. On the other hand, they have the top-rated farm system in baseball, and they may just you know, be waiting to unleash Miguel Vargas on everybody. <laughs> and five months from now, we'll be like, man, imagine when nobody wanted to let Miguel Vargas take 500 plate appearances. That guy rules. I don't know what to make of this Dodgers team, but I know I'm more interested to watch them than I have been in a long time just because they're not the Terminator anymore. They've been the Terminator for a while. I think that's a good way of putting it. The division, I will still take the Dodgers in that division. You know, it's it's sort of similar to my take take on the Braves the last few years. It's like I'm not going to kind of predict their demise until it actually happens. Like I'm not going to predict the Mets until the Mets actually, or the Phillies for that matter, until they actually finish ahead of this iteration of the Braves. Same way I feel about the Dodgers. I think that that division is way more wide open than it has been, but I'm not going to pick against the Dodgers until I see it. And maybe that's sort of like cowardly, but I've like I've tried to talk myself into picking against them in the last few years, and it has gone wrong each and every time. So, uh, But I'm excited to see a more wide open division this year. All right, let's move on to our second topic. As everybody's been reporting in spring training, <laughs> the, the biggest, I think, um, category of Twitter photos I see from beat writers is just the comparison of new base sizes, right? Everybody's going to get used to the new rules. Larger bases, pitch timer, the shift limits, the pickoff limits. We've talked about these a lot. We'll obviously talk about them more. Uh, two new things happened. The man on second and extra innings has been permanently added to the rule book. It was kind of on an annual renewal basis before then. And there are new limits on position player pitching, which I want to talk about quickly before we get into some interesting stuff Max Scherzer said. Position players can now only pitch in one of these three situations. If it's extra innings, if by the team that is winning is up by 10 or more runs in the ninth, if by a team, if a team that is losing is down by eight or more runs. Previously, it could have been either team when they were up or down by six runs. This is fine to me. I cannot imagine like a downside to this position players pitching got kind of boring to me last year. Our friend Eno Saris had a really good stat. Five years ago, there were 78 pitches that were thrown under 60 miles an hour, which is to say position players lobbing stuff. 78 pitches. Last year, that number soared to 856 pitches. I liken it a little bit to I like ice cream, but then if I eat five gallons of ice cream, I think I'm going to throw up. And that's sort of what happened there. It got, just got fun, uh, less fun. And the triple slash line last year against position players pitching, 375, 429, 693 with a 2.5% strikeout rate. I don't think I need to see that much more of that. But, you know, there's still you can still do it at times because I still want to see like Albert Pujols get on the mound, just not all the time. I don't need to see Hanser Alberto throw 15 times or whatever he did. Has, has the phrase jump the shark, jump the shark yet? Because what I was going to say is position players pitching has jumped the shark. It, it was it was entertaining once in a while. Put you in perspective, last year there were 132 pitching appearances by position players. In 2008, just 15 years ago, there were three. Yeah. Right? It's just, it's gotten ridiculous. It was fun once in a while. Even last year, hey, when Yadier Molina pitched, that was kind of fun to see. But like too often, it was just like your your David Fletcher's of the world, just like coming in to throw mop up or even worse, throw when they were winning. And it was just like, 
what are we doing? So I'm I'm all for this. I, I laugh at some of the pushback. And I say, I, I've said this before, I don't love all the rule changes. There's some I wouldn't have done, but just I like the idea of trying to move the game forward because people are like, no, don't change the game. It's never changed. That's right. It's never changed. And that's why we play a 154 game schedule entirely during the day east of St. Louis. <laughs> Nothing has ever changed. The game changes. You got to change with it. The pitch timer is the one I'm the most excited about, as we've been talking about for a while. And I think we've been looking at it mostly in the sense of, I don't want to say, is that a detriment to pitchers in the sense that it's something new they got to deal with. They have to change their games. Um, Kenley Jansen is openly saying, I got to figure this out because I'm so slow. Uh, But Matt, you found something really interesting that Max Scherzer said, and I think it's cool. He's trying to weaponize it. It's not going to be a problem for him. It's going to be something he can use to his advantage. I think that's a really interesting way to watch for it. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you had asked me when these rules were first announced, who's going to be like the biggest squeaky wheel about this and like being angry about it, I would have said Max Scherzer. I was like, he's like the most likely pitcher to be like get annoyed about the pitch clock and to get mad the first time he gets called for a violation. So I was really surprised yesterday when he was asked about it at, at Mets camp, and he said. It plays right into my hand. I've always wanted to work quick. The only reason I've never been able to work quick is because the hitter can always call timeout. So the fact that a hitter can only call timeout once in a bat, now I can actually dictate pace. Now I can actually force action. So for me, I'm definitely going to like that. So I thought that was really interesting to hear. And it like, I've actually heard some other people around the game say this, that like some of the hitters are going to have the hardest time adjusting because they actually, they have to be in the box with eight seconds left on the clock, ready to swing the bat. Whereas in the past, You would often see pitchers, when you think about it, you'd see pitchers standing on the mound, holding the glove in front of their face, waiting for the batter to get into the box. And now, basically, like, the batter's not in the box, clock straight's eight, they can just pitch the ball. So, like, it's actually, in some ways, it's going to be a bigger adjustment for the hitters, and we'll have a better sense of which pitchers, to to Scherzer's point, are adaptable. And are kind of like, yeah, I, I always could have done this. I just didn't do it because, like, hitters were staying out of the box, and I didn't didn't want to just stand there. Yeah, it'd be amazing if this ended up making Max Scherzer even more dominant because he can just, he can use his intelligence and his intimidation to make the rules work for him, not against him, because some pitchers are going to struggle with it for sure. So I, I've always wanted it because I've seen it in person. It makes for better place to play. All that's great. But I'm I'm so interested to see how the strategy is going to go. There's another a little bit of a change that I don't think enough people noticed. They're going to ask the umpires to be a little more strict in enforcing box. Because, you know, everybody knows what a buck is. I shouldn't have to explain what a buck is for sure. And there's a couple of interesting uh, pitching deliveries that you can't really do anymore. So Luis Garcia of Houston kind of did like the rock the baby cradle thing, like the back and forth. He's not going to be allowed to do that. And the reason for that is if you're going to have a pitch timer, you need to kind of have a defined, well, here is when we're stopping the timer because the guy's starting his delivery. And if he's, you know, doing the the two-step out there, it's kind of hard to figure out when that is. I should say... That is not going to take individualized deliveries out of the game, right? Like, I'm pretty sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, what Nestor Cortez, Nestor Cortez does, he can still do, right? Because he starts his delivery, and then he does weird stuff in the process of that. Yeah, I think Johnny Cueto is like that. Uh, but there's a couple of specific ones where it's like movement before you really start get going, like the Luis Garcia example. That's not going to happen. I'll be interested to see how that affects certain guys. Yeah, I think I think you're right about... Um... Cortez, because as you said, it's in the middle. It's, it's kind of it's often like a little like wheel in the middle of his pitch, or just a pause when he's got his knee at his chest. But he's he's clearly already started his delivery, so I think that's okay. The issue with, with Garcia is he does it before he starts his windup, and it's unclear 
when he's starting his windup, and that's why that's not going to be allowed. It's you know, it was a cool little thing that he did, and it's kind of like a little disappointing. But like, hey, we're not going to like rewrite the rule book so Luis Garcia can keep doing his rock the baby delivery. Like, this is not enough of a, a impediment to progress that we have to change rethink everything. Why do you hate baseball, Matt? Come on. <laughs> Our third topic is. I went and I looked at a bunch of teams who improved their defense this winter. And I initially thought maybe this was going to be kind of a trend, right? Like we're trying to get more balls in play. You can't shift as aggressively as you used to. And then I saw that the Dodgers and the Royals and the Marlins and maybe the Padres also kind of got their defense worse. So maybe it's not a trend. Maybe it's just that's what the direction these three teams went with. The Cubs, the Twins, and the Blue Jays. Those are the ones I want to talk about. The Cubs defense last year was pretty bad uh, by outs above average. They were 27th. Defensive run save didn't like them that much better. And so what did they do? They went out and spent a whole bunch of money to replace their only very good defender. I'm kind of joking a little bit, but Nico Horner was a really good shortstop. He's going to play second. Uh, Dansby Swanson is going to play shortstop. Cody Bellinger is going to play center field, who I don't know if he's going to hit, but he's an excellent center fielder. And then um, they signed Eric Hosmer to play first base. He's never been as good as his reputation, and those gold gloves are many years ago. But if you just look at it up the middle, right? Uh, they have Tucker Barnhart's going to be behind the plate. Swanson and Horner at the middle infield. Bellinger in center. Ian Happ was a very good left fielder, actually, last year. This is going to be a much better defense. And I think for a team like this that does not have a swing and miss pitching staff, that has like a pitch-to-contact pitching staff, you need a very good defense. So I think if I'm a pitcher for the Cubs, I'm probably pretty excited. Pitcher for the Cubs, you may you might say like Marcus Stroman. Uh, Marcus Stroman is very excited about this new defense. You know, as, as we know, Marcus Stroman throws a very effective, um, I don't know if he calls it a two-seam fastball or a sinker, but it it generates a lot of ground balls. And yesterday he was asked about his new defense in camp, and he said, that sanker's going to be sanker this year. Yeah, Dansby and Nico. There it is. Dansby and Nico, man. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I don't see a better shortstop, second base, range-wise, capability-wise. I don't see a better one in the league. And aesthetically, I love a single ball pitcher who has it going with a great defense behind them and just like pounding the lower half of the strike zone and generating ground ball after ground ball. So I think this actually could be a really fun combination. My guess is we'll see a few games this year where like Strowman really has it going and it's just like with the pitch. These are the games where you could see like a really quick pace, you know, single ball on the mound, working quickly, pounding the lower half of the zone and getting ground ball after ground ball. I could see that being a really like really some brisk games at Wrigley this year with Stroman on the mound. The second team I wanted to talk about was the Twins. And this is a little bit of, I think, uh, addition by subtraction because Luis Arise obviously won the batting average title. He's not a very good defender, so he's not there anymore. Miguel Sano is gone. Gary Sanchez is gone. Gio Urshela was a little bit divisive in that past the eye test, but the metrics never liked him very much. He's gone too. And so the infield will be, it'll be okay, right? Like Carlos Correa back is a, is a huge thing. But you look at this outfield, so they already had Byron Buxton, who I know he's not always healthy or sometimes rarely healthy, but he is maybe the best defensive outfielder in baseball when he's healthy. They had Max Kepler, who was a pretty good defensive outfielder. They added Joey Gallo, who's kind of like Cody Bellinger in that he's a powerful outfielder who may or may not hit, but he's, he's a good defender. And they traded for Michael A. Taylor, who I really liked this because if you're going to roll out Byron Buxton, you have to bake into it. He's going to miss 90 games. If he doesn't, you're lucky, but he's probably going to miss 90 games. Well, in the past, they haven't really had a good backup option. And so that's how you end up with like Gilberto Celestino and Jake Cave and all these kind of guys who are, who are fine. Michael A. Taylor is a really, really, really good defensive outfielder. Is he going to hit? I don't know. So 
when Buxton can't play, he can play a very good center fielder. When Buxton can play, maybe you're rolling out Taylor, Buxton, and Kepler left to right, which is amazingly good. And with Gallo as a reserve, um, if I'm like Pablo Lopez, who's not a huge strikeout guy, got traded for a rise, I'm pretty happy giving up fly balls in Minnesota because those three guys are going to catch it. This could be like an elite defensive outfield, maybe the best in team history. Mike, you were giving me a hard time earlier in this podcast for being yes. such a downer about about pitcher injuries, mm-hmm. and now you're pre- already predicting that Byron Bucks is going to miss 90 games. Oh, uh, you know what they say? What do they say in the stock market, right? Like, past performance does not guarantee future results. He is not going to play more than 100 games. What, has that happened once, I think, in his career? I love Byron Buxton. I love him. It doesn't ever happen. All right. Who, who's your, who's your, you had one more team who's gonna, who improved on defense. Uh, the Blue Jays. Blue Jays are somewhat similar because this is outfield focus. The infield is very similar to last year. They're bringing back the same infield. That's not going to change. They're like a middle of the pack infield. Uh, Chapman is good, but not as great as he once was. Bo Bichette is not a strong uh, defensive shortstop. Look at what they did in the outfield. So they got rid of Ryan Tapia, who's not a good defender. They got rid of Teoscar Hernandez, who's not a good defender. And they got rid of Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who's not a great defender. And they brought in Kevin Kiermeyer, who I don't know if people think this is hyperbolic of me to say. I think he's one of the greatest defenders who ever lived. Like I think he is an all-time great defensive outfielder. People will be like, oh, Jim Edmonds and Willie Mays and Andrew Jones. Fine. I will take Kevin Kiermaier up there with any of them. That's how good I think he is. And also, they traded for Dalton Varsho, who actually led StatCast and outs above average last year. Is he going to do that again? I don't know. But he's got these amazing jumps and reaction times. He makes everything look so easy. To do that, you put Varsho in left, Kiermaier in center, you move George Springer to right, and he's a pretty good center fielder, and now you're going to put him in right? This might be as good as the Twins. Like this is these are teams who are clearly saying if you hit the ball in the outfield, if it doesn't go over the fence, it's not going to be a hit. And if you remember how the Blue Jays lost that collapse of a wild card game last year, pop up to short center, Springer comes in, runs into Bichette, couldn't quite get it. Kiermaier gets that ball, and he maybe gets there easily. That could have changed their whole season. This could be a subtle way that the Blue Jays kind of move up and you know, take overtake the Rays and maybe even the Yankees in the East. I think the defense is when it comes to projections. I think projecting how how defense is going to play is probably always the trickiest element. And this year, although I think it's going to apply less to outfield defense, the shift restrictions are going to change. You know, defensive like defensive performance. I don't want to say significantly, but I think in a notable in a notable way, in a way that at the end of the year will be not- noticeable. And it's really hard to know exactly all the ways that, it's, that that's going to manifest itself on the field. So I think it'll be really interesting to watch. And like these teams that seem to have upgraded their their talent level on defense are the kind of teams that could be sneakily better than we think they're going to be. We'll take a quick break, and we will come back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. 
there was a trade that happened a couple of days ago that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, and it's just so interesting to us that we felt like we needed to take a few minutes on it. Uh, the A's and the Marlins made what you might call a challenge trade, although I'm not sure it's exactly that. So the Marlins took their outfielder, J.J. Pladé, who was the number four overall pick in 2019 out of Vanderbilt. They traded him straight up to Oakland for A.J. Puck, who is a number six overall pick in 2016. Those are like big names in the drafting and prospect world. You know, so if this trade had happened like four years ago, your eyes would have popped out of your head. They're not quite what you would have expected considering their high draft picks. Uh, Puck has been injured quite a bit. He's now probably more of a reliever. Bladé made it to the majors last year and hit 167, 277, 309. Not great. His hard hit rate was 299th out of 411 guys with 100 batted balls. So I think I like the premise for each side, right? If you're the A's, you don't care that much about a setup man, possible closer in the situation where you're in, where you know you're not going to contend. So if you can flip that guy for the next five years of a potential everyday outfielder, fine. If you're the Marlins, you know, it might seem weird to trade away a bat, but they think they're going to contend this year. And so Puck will probably do better for them than Blade would have. Here's why I like it a little better for the Marlins. If the Marlins, who desperately need a bat, have seen enough out of J.J. Bleday in like two months of baseball that they're willing to trade him for an oft-injured reliever, it doesn't say great things to me about what kind of player J.J. Bleday is going to be. And if you look at the strategy the A's have taken over the last couple of years, they traded for Christian Bache, who's an outfielder who wasn't really going to hit. They traded for Estuary Ruiz, who's an outfielder who doesn't look like he's going to hit. And now they're traded for J.J. Bleday, and I'm not saying that I'm right and they're wrong. I'm just saying that they are operating in a very different way from every other team, which I guess you also would have said 20 years ago, and look what happened there. Like The whole, the whole game theory of it is really interesting to me. Yeah, Blade is a player who, like, you, you, you watch his swing. He, like, looks, he looks like he should be – he has the, like, the, the look of, like, a, a star baseball player. And you look at his whole track record, right? He, going into his junior year in college at Vanderbilt – the summer before junior year, he played in the Cape Cod League, like the the place where the, the best college prospects play. He was voted by scouts as the top prospect in the league. Then he went out and hit 26 home runs as a junior and led Division One with 26 home runs. So it's like, oh, my God, this best college program, Vanderbilt, dominates the Cape Cod League, leads the country in homers. This guy's going to be a dude. It seems like power is going to be a big part of his game. And then in the in pro ball, he just has not hit for any power at all. So it's hard. Like, that's where it just makes me, you know, he slugged 407 in the minors. As you mentioned, the hard hit rate. So it's just hard to sort of feel like, oh, like, this is, this like, it doesn't seem like the skill that was supposed to, like, the that's supposed to be there is there at all. He seems like he could be a high, has a good walk rate, so there could be a high OBP guy in there, like a very old school A's money ball player. But Puck, at least, like, he throws hard and Seems like the kind of guy, he's not a free agent for another few years. Like, he could be like a very good reliever for a few years with maybe like ace reliever potential in there. So I'm with you. I like this a little bit better for the Marlins. Even if like, if Blade hits his ceiling, it will far outweigh a reliever. It just, he's shown no indication that he's going to hit that ceiling. Do you understand the A strategy better than I do? Right, because I haven't really liked any of these outfielder trades. So if you look at their depth chart right now, you know, it looks like they're going to have Blade in left, uh, Ruiz and Pache in center. And Ramon Laureano and maybe some Seth Brown and Ray. And Laureano's been there for a while. He's a holdover. Like what what am I missing about some of these bats that they are going for who just from my eyes don't look like that they are likely to be probable, you know, performers? I, I mean, the track record of the A's as an organization has been generally that they know how to find these guys. Sure. The last couple of years that has been less true. So like 
if you asked me, if we looked at this lineup like six years ago, I would have been like, hey, the A's know what they're doing. Like, they're going to figure out, make this a winning team. The last three or four years of A's history makes me a little more skeptical of that. But like, hey, the A's have surprised me before. I mean, I don't think it's a playoff team, but like, it might be a decent team because the starting pitching is actually kind of might be like pretty good, but I don't really know what to make of the bats. I feel like there's no path to them having an, even an average offense. No, I'm with you on that. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.